As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everyone, to another Americans Abroad edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me, I have a man who mails suspicious packages around the country. I think <laughs> it's Joe Lowry. I know it's Joe Lowry. I think it was Joe Lowry sending packages. Joe, is that correct? That is correct. So you got it. That, I've been wondering that for a while now, honestly. <laughs> it arrived yesterday, uh, and it was. I, I thought it was from, uh, from you. I wasn't entirely sure, and then I opened it up. And there was a loaf of bread inside the package. I don't know if there was a note. Did you include a note as well, or did you just want your bread to be your signature? As far as I'm aware, it was bread only. Um, <laughs> I, I do I do wonder, like, was it still in the right shape? I, I've never mailed a loaf of bread before, believe it or not. Nor have I. And so, yeah. like, is it still roughly resembling a loaf? Where are we at on the visual? It still looks like a loaf to me. I held off posting anything because I wanted to spring this on you. And with the off chance being that it wasn't you and it was just somebody else from Arizona who knew that we were both talking right, about bread baking, right. it also does feel a little bit like you're rubbing it in my face, that you have the time and energy to learn how to bake bread while I still <laughs> uh, think about doing that and then inevitably just fall asleep wherever I can and try to get like an hour of sleep. Well, I mean, Taylor, to be fair, only one of us has a very, very young child yeah, slash baby slash being that they now have to take care of. That's why I feel it's it's not like me. you're rubbing it in my so, face. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I've got a little extra time. If you're if you're bold enough, I mean, like the bread hopefully is good. I, I, I didn't get a chance to try it. Otherwise, you would have had just a loaf with one slice missing. But I, I'm curious <laughs> to see what you think if you have the uh, the bravery to try my baking. But I don't know. Either way, you now have a loaf of bread from Arizona. I appreciate that. We have a a very, very, very good bakery uh, near to our house Ooh. that I might just have to go buy a loaf from and then send it to you and pretend I made it. <laughs> okay. uh, but then I'm then I'm living a life of lies and deception. I don't I'm know okay if I need that, that, Joe. I'm fine with okay. that. If All I'm right. getting carbs, you know, it's it's going to be fine. <laughs> uh, well, we're not just here to talk about bread, although I do. What, what, what was the loaf? Honestly, it's been like a couple weeks now. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I like, think it's like, a, it? I think it's like, well, I don't know. I don't know, Taylor. I have the memory of a goldfish. All right. I, I think, I think it's some sort of like honey, molasses y, sweeter wheat well, bread, like I had something right. in that vein. 
I've tried out a couple of different recipes, and I'm again, I'm curious to see if you can identify the flavors in it because clearly I've forgotten. <laughs> I feel like we're talking French toast bread here, and I'm excited about it. Oh, but it could be until could be. Un- until I go make some French toast. Let's talk about the Americans who did some stuff or didn't do that much stuff this past weekend. We've got, I believe, eight or so. We're going to talk about Joe. Who should we talk about first? Let's talk Chris Richards, shall we? Let's do it. I, I think Let's any it. any Americans abroad conversation is better off for starting with Chris Richards and. He did start, in fact, for Hoffenheim over the weekend in their 1-1 draw with Union Berlin. Chris Richards, Taylor, is looking more and more comfortable. He looks mm-hmm. – he doesn't he doesn't look out of place at all. Every time I've watched him, that could be in the Europa League. Hoffenheim bowed out uh, last week, I believe, to Mold in the Europa League. But Richards is, is now a regular starter in pretty much all of Hoffenheim's big games. He started in each of their last four games. That's some Bundesliga, some European competition. He's playing as that left-sided center back in a back three. And man, he's looked good. Have you seen Taylor? This is not to put you on the spot, but have you seen mm-hmm. any little bits of Chris Richards that would give you an idea of how he's playing? Because for me, it looks like he's completely up to that level. I have. I will admit uh, to an embarrassing uh, uh, brain fart of sorts this past weekend where I was watching. I watched like a, a chunk of Hoffenheim uh, Union Berlin and I forgetting that like he had been li- remembering that he had been linked with Union Berlin earlier in the season, that that was the initial loan move that he was sort of connected right. to. My brain then filled in the blanks and decided that he played for Union Berlin. So for a little while, I was like, where I, I don't see him. <laughs> I know he's starting. Then I remembered and then I was very, very excited. And I don't want to go fully into the like, okay, it's him and John Brooks until it's anybody else, which does seem to be the way Twitter has gone. But I understand why that hype is there, because to make the move from Bayern to Hoffenheim as he did, there is some expectation of maybe it's going to take a little bit of time to get used to it. Maybe he's not going to quite be at senior level yet. And that's why he's there with Hoffenheim on the loan to get some experience. And yet here he is kind of jumping into the starting 11 and and looking pretty comfortable. And it's obviously, as we talked about in the past, the coach who he has experience with at youth level at Bayern now managing Hoffenheim. But still, yeah, I think I've been really surprised to see just how easily he's jumped in and looked pretty smooth. He looks like a modern center back. I have that in bold in my notes. That term gets thrown around a lot, or at least maybe I throw it around a lot. Maybe other people don't. But this idea of a 21st century, a 2020, 2021 kind of center back that is athletic, that can cover ground behind a high line with a team that wants to play with the ball and push all of their outfield players into the attacking half. That modern center back has to be able to step back and sweep in behind the line to cover ground there if if the team loses the ball in possession. The modern center back also has to be able to defend 1v1 in space because usually uh, we think of modern teams, or at least I think of modern teams, as being more possession-oriented, more aggressive in an attacking sense. That then leaves you occasionally vulnerable defensively, so you need that 1v1 ability out of your central defenders. And then offensively, modern center backs have to be able to play out of pressure. They have to be able to break lines, and then they have to be able to dribble forward with the ball, draw a defender in, and create some space for a teammate. Chris Richards checks every single one of those boxes that I just said, even though we don't have a great sample size of him at a Bundesliga level. From what we've seen so so far, excuse me, and I do want to be measured in how we talk about Richards, just like every other player, but from everything I've seen out of Chris Richards so far, he checks the boxes to be a modern center back, and honestly, I don't think the U.S. has one of those right now outside of Chris Richards. From the U.S. national team perspective, what is the thing that he does that makes you most excited when it comes to being that modern center back? It sounds like it's that that sort of passing vision, but I'm wondering what it might be. No, it is that passing vision. And I'm glad you asked that question, Taylor, because that kind of fits right in with a moment that I wanted to bring up from Chris Richards in this game for Hoffenheim over the weekend. It's it's later in the second half. So it's about the 75th minute. 
Hoffenheim are in possession in the attacking half. They're trying to get a goal. Chris Richards receives the ball from the center center back. So the ball is coming from the right side of Hoffenheim in, into the middle and then over to the left. And then Chris Richards receives the ball, dribbles forward into the attack, draws the attention of three Union Berlin players, and in doing so, creates space for a teammate to get on the ball in midfield. So Richards is, is kind of running forward with the ball. He's dribbling. He looks up, sees a teammate open in a really good spot in midfield, plays that ball with his weak foot, with his left foot that breaks lines into that attacking teammate. And then that attacking teammate can then play the ball forward, and it creates a great chance for Hoffenheim. These are sequences that Chris Richards, Chris Richards can create for Hoffenheim or with the U.S. men's national team to get what, with mm-hmm. what you actually asked. He can drive forward with the ball, draw people in, which then creates space for other players. I talk about this on MLS Assist with Jordan sometimes. Carlos Vela is really good at doing that. Completely different position. Totally different from the right wing to center back. But it's the same principle of being dangerous with the ball, forcing people to commit to you, and then giving space and creating space for those around you. Richards does that for Hoffenheim, and I think he's going to do that really well with the men's national team. Right, because, and we've seen this with the U.S. men's national team, it's usually John Brooks when they need a center back to sort of try to get uh, an opposition player to engage. It's taking that touch and driving forward maybe 10 or 15 yards and just seeing if you can get a bunkered opponent to step out just a little bit, to to feel uncertain and to drift towards you, and that opens up a little bit of pocket of space. And I'm with you. I see Chris Richards doing that, if not with regularity, then at least with comfort. And it yes. seems like even his yes. the passes he does play, uh, we've, we haven't talked about packing stats in a while, but to see the way he does kind of thread the needle, split some players on occasion, it's not simply just gets the ball, plays it 15 yards into somebody who then has to kind of receive and turn and now they've got a defender on them. He tends to split some lines, find some openings in a way that, yeah, makes me very comfortable to see him, or makes me happy to see him so comfortable on the ball. And Richards can be an asset against more of a more of a defensive team that's sitting in their own half, like we're talking about with his ability to draw players in and create space in the attacking half. He can also be an asset, I think, against a higher-pressing team. If we think about the U.S. playing Mexico, Mexico is going to press. Tata Martino is going to send that team forward mm-hmm. into the United States half and have them press and press and press. Chris Richards can comfortably receive the ball around the box. Yeah, he's not mistake-proof, but he's, he's certainly not mistake-prone. He's able to get on the ball and distribute from deeper areas as well. And so his ability to, to help the U.S. against a higher pressing team or against a lower block defensive team, he can do both of those things really well, and that makes me excited too. Speaking of you being excited, Joe, I have, a, I have another Richards question for you, and it's about what you would like to see from him at the end of this season. Uh, as far as I understand, the loan to Hoffenheim was in January. It's a six-month loan. There's no option to buy. But if there were rumblings that Hoffenheim were going to try to find a way to purchase him, they did want to make that move permanent. Would you be excited about that? Because it means he's moving to a Bundesliga club, albeit a mid, mid-table Bundesliga club, where he'll get regular minutes. Or would you rather see him stay for another season and fight and see if he can intermittently or regularly break into that Bayern Munich starting 11. I heard you and Ryan and Graham talking about Upamecano with Leipzig yesterday uh-huh. on, on the weekend review, and he's moving to Bayern Munich. And that's just another reason why I think it's a better option for Chris Richards to stay where he is and to try to secure yep. another season with Hoffenheim. It's a good level, right? It's a, it's a good, consistent starting Bundesliga opportunity that he's given right now. It's a coach that he knows, like you said already. It's a system that I think, that I think fits his skill set so well. Hoffenheim are not Werder Bremen. Hoffenheim are not Schalke in how they play. Hoffenheim will actually use the ball, try to pass out from the back, try to break team down, teams down in possession. And when we're looking at a men's national team player for the U.S., 
That's how Burhalter wants to play. And so you've got mm-hmm. that continuity. It's not like Chris Richards is going to play with Josh Sargent at Werder Bremen. That, that could be kind of fun, but, but not really. The tag team there would not outweigh the, the bad style of soccer that mm-hmm. Werder Bremen play. And so you want to get Richards at a team that roughly resembles the U.S. men's national team. Hoffenheim does that job, and I think they're going to be better next season than they are right now with, with some more time under their current coach. So it, it only feels like a good thing if Richards can secure another year at Hoffenheim, to me at least. I agree. I agree. Um, and I think part of that is framed by, and the reason why I said that question is framed by, I'm going to talk a little bit about DeAndre Yedlin later. But for some reason, I had that moment today of like, oh, maybe that Newcastle move never should have happened. And we'll talk about <laughs> more why I feel that way in a second or later on. But for now, with Chris Richards, it feels like staying at Bayern Munich could be very exciting if he were to break through, but it does feel like another season of maybe playing with the reserves, maybe getting a few minutes here and there, maybe yeah. he's in a cup game. Whereas, yeah, staying with Hoffenheim, he gets the minutes, he gets the reps. If it's another loan for the entire season, that's cool. If it's not, it also feels like smart business by Bayern Munich, who bought him for, I think, like a little over a million dollars from FC Dallas. Now he feels like maybe an $8 million player, maybe a little bit more than that. Who knows? Uh, I guess it depends on what Hoffenheim are willing to pay and what Bayern Munich will ask for. But either way, it could be smart business for Bayern Munich as well, and it could be good business for Chris Richards to be a regular performer in the Bundesliga. Bayern Munich are an incredibly run club. They're run so yep. well. With the with the players they're able to buy for the prices they're able to buy, they've tapped into that American market, specifically down in the south and kind of the southeast. Then they also just buy players in Europe that are undervalued. Not they're not cheap, mind you, but you know, 20, 30, 40 million euro players. And then they look like 80 million euro players for Bayern, and then they can flip them or they can keep them and, and not break the bank like Barcelona. But I, it, it, I don't know. That's not really what we're talking about here, but I, I did want to say Bayern Munich know what they're doing. That they do. Uh, with that in mind, uh, episode number 26 of Soccer 101 is entitled How Hey-ho. Have Bayern Munich Been So Good For So Long? And that one features Manuel Vates talking a bit about the history of that club. Manuel will be with me uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, March 3rd. If you're listening to this after that time, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Bundesliga, a lot bit about uh, Schalke, who I wanted to talk about here next. Uh, Joe, anything else to say about Chris Richards? One thing to watch for. We talk about, Please. you know, how can these players continue to improve? Chris Richards defensively, I think, is a very good player in a lot of ways. He's got good defensive awareness. He's got great speed. He's got pretty good 1v1 defensive ability from what I've seen so far. I'm, I'm willing to be wrong on that, but so far that seems to hold up. The biggest thing that I think he can improve on right now is his ability to win balls in the air. In this game against Union Berlin, and I looked at the stats as well on FB Ref, which is a great, great website. I looked at the numbers and I looked at this game, and Chris Richards is not very good at winning aerial duels. He's not a strong force in the air. Which is strange, because he's not a small guy, and he's also not unathletic. I think he's got good good leaping ability, good hops, all, the, all of those things. But he doesn't seem right now to have the strength to win those battles, and so I'm watching for that as the Bundesliga season kind of winds down over the next couple of months. Does Richards improve that with getting more regular minutes, or is that going to be a problem headed into next year? Uh, speaking entirely from a speculation standpoint, I, I do think... like. Uh, Challenging for those types of headers is harder than it seems because when that goal kick is taken, when that ball is hoofed long, you're reacting to it. You're trying to judge the angle and where it's going to be, but you're also sort of gambling on if you are going to challenge for that potentially you're losing a mark, and if you lose it, if you miss it, if it goes over your head, now that player is in on goal. And I think sometimes when it's a new player who doesn't quite have their footing yet, isn't quite on the soundest of ground... 
they don't necessarily want to gamble and roll the dice and maybe try to split the difference a little bit. So maybe with a bit more comfort, he's a bit more comfortable challenging for those. And uh, then we do see that part of his game develop. No, that makes sense. And, and like I said, yeah, we'll just kind of have to wait and see what happens. But yep. that is a that's a sound explanation for why it might be happening. Taylor, I appreciate that. There you go. Uh, my pleasure. Well, we will have to wait to hear what's going on at Shaka uh, until after these words from our advertisers. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Joe, you ready to talk about a confusing situation that (laughs) doesn't seem like it's going to go very well? Oh, I'm ready, Taylor. Bring it on. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to use Matthew Hoppe as my uh, like introduction to this. Matthew Hoppe got 71 minutes. Uh, Ashoka lost 5-1 to one to 10th place uh, Stuttgart. It's not great for Schalke. They are bottom of the table, 9 points from 23 games, 8 points behind Mainz, who are currently in 17th. They play each other next. Uh, Schalke currently on track for the worst season in Bundesliga history, uh, which I felt like at the... At first, I felt kind of bad about that because it's like, yeah, if a team doesn't win their first game, they have zero points. Technically, they're on track for the worst Bundesliga season <laughs> right. ever. But with only 11 games remaining, it feels a bit more substantive this time round. That has led to a clear out, uh, a purge is what I think Manuel called it when he was talking about this uh, on Twitter. Christian Gross, the manager, sacked after two months in charge meaning that whoever comes in next will be the fifth manager for Schalke this season. Uh, their sporting director, who was supposed to leave at the end of the season, is also gone. Team coordinator Sasha Ritter, lead fitness coach Werner Lutard, and assistant coach Rainer Widmeyer are all fired as well. Uh, there were They denied reports that there had been some sort of coup in the locker room, that there had been a mutiny, though other reports, including from Raphael Honigstein, seems to indicate that that's pretty much exactly what happened, and it at least some combination of Kolasinic, Mustafi, and Huntelar. Those are the three that are alleged to have been the kind of most vocal critics of what was happening with Schalke. Also the three who joined in January and are maybe newest to the dysfunction at the club. Had complaints about uh, outdated methods of training, the system of defense that was being utilized, calling players the wrong name. And now we have a complete clear out at Schalke. Uh, it does not seem good. They have tried to kind of structure it or present it as this is our last chance to save ourselves from relegation and we're going to do everything we can but looking at what they're doing looking at how they're kind of choosing to approach this it does feel very much like they are preparing for relegation preparing for next season and getting some people in place to be able to plan for that accordingly man Schalke are a complete disaster that's not that's not I mean that's not shocking at this point they are so bad and they've been so bad this whole year Mm -hmm. I just, I guess I should stop being so amazed, but I am continually amazed no, at I think that's some fair. of the decisions and some of the, the poor structure that is now coming to light. Th- these decisions and firing this many people this close to the end of the season after you've already had coaching and structural and organizational turnover earlier on in the year. I mean, that is just, 
if that's not the sign of a poorly run club, Taylor, I honestly don't know what is. Yeah, and and I'm with you on that because you look at say I think it was the 2017 2018 season they finished second. So for them to go from that to this position is already confusing. But then even looking at the players that they have out on loan for this year, we know they've got Weston McKinney out. There's Sebastian Rudy. There's Ravi Matondo. There is Osan Kabak obviously at Liverpool. There are players that could make this team better, and at the very least, had they been sold, could have given the club more money to then reinvest, get stronger players, or at the very least, redevelop it, reinvest it so that they're in a stronger position next season if they are in the two Bundesliga. But that hasn't happened either. They will end up getting some money. Uh, I think there were reports last week that Juve are going to exercise that clause. Stands to reason Liverpool as well when it comes to Kabak, but it's just, I still don't get those deals from the, like, I guess maybe they just thought they were bulletproof and assumed they'd be in the Bundesliga next season no matter what. And so then at that point, they'll have more money because then Weston McKinney or Kabak will have justified their loan prices. But now they find themselves in a position of they don't have that money. They look like they're going down. And if those players do come back, they probably can't afford to keep them. So to some extent, I won't be surprised if they're even not going to make as much money as was in the loan agreement to begin with, because that club could just say, nope. He can come back to you all. We know you can't afford him, and then we'll buy him from you for even cheaper. So I think there's there's maybe there's some mandatory buy options in there. I still just don't understand a lot of the business that Schalke have done. Whenever a big club, and I think it's fair to call Schalke a big club, whenever a big club gets relegated, and I do think Schalke will be relegated, I always feel like, and Taylor, tell me if you agree or disagree, I always kind of feel like and assume that they're just going to bounce right back, that they'll be yeah. back the next year and, and come up and be promoted from the second division the following season. With Schalke, I, I'm not sure of that at all. I, yeah. I, I think it's almost even more unlikely that they are promoted than it would be if they just ended up playing in the two Bundesliga again after next season. So that's two years in the two Bundesliga. That's, that's how difficult of a spot Schalke are in right now. That's how difficult of a spot they've put themselves in. Mm-hmm. And so, Taylor, I want to ask you about Matthew Hoppe because right now he is kind of the biggest American tie to this club. What's the move for him at the end of the year? Is it better to go back down or to go down with Schalke and play in the two Bundesliga and try to get some more reps? Is it better to try to move away? Where where do you stand on the Hoppy mm-hmm. situation? I think if he were if a move presented itself that would allow him to play top flight football with regularity, I think that is always going to be ideal. But you really can't know for sure what a new club will uh what their future looks like and what maybe the situation will be six months from now. So if it means going down with Schalke but playing in the two Bundesliga but starting every single game with a lot of kind of academy players around him and there's a manager who has a plan and a technical director who has a plan then maybe it makes sense because it allows him to develop at a lower level, but maybe find some footing, develop his game. And now he jumps back up to the Bundesliga if they come back and things look great. But I share your hesitation, Joe, that from what I understand, Schalke's uh, board have to authorize certain decisions. That means you have to get everybody or at least a majority of the board members uh, on on side, so to speak. And that makes some of the decision making harder. It does not seem like there is a clear vision and a lot of money behind it for how to improve things. If anything, I, I err on the side of they might they're closer to a Sunderland situation, I think, than they are a West Brom bounce right back up sort of scenario. And I think it's incumbent upon Matthew Hoppy then to look at what the plan is for next year, if and when they're relegated slash when they're relegated, and understand this is who's taking over, this is who's going to be in charge, this is the vision, this is how the money will be spent. And I think he does have the cachet to sort of demand that. Yes, he's very young. Yes, he's still like relatively inexperienced and relatively unproven. But to your point, he is a name for them. He 
keeps attention on the club, Americans will continue to care about them because he is there. If he leaves, I don't know if they care as much. So I think he has a lot of clout to kind of ask some questions, some difficult questions, and then gauge the answers accordingly. I wouldn't mind if he stays there if there's a plan in place, but that seems like it's not going to happen anytime soon. I just can't wait for the new Netflix documentary about Schalke, right? As Schalke <laughs> till I die. I think I think we can make that happen. Netflix, get get to Schalke it. Ma- Schalke makes me sad. That's the uh, <laughs> that's that's the Netflix series. Let's not talk any more about sad, sad Schalke. What should we talk about instead, Joseph? I'd love to move us to a rosier topic, and I guess it is slightly rosier, but Uh-oh. it's not. It's not super great. It's Gio Reyna who started right. in Dortmund's three nothing win over Armenia over the weekend. Reyna played about seventy minutes. He got some good. Good playing time, but um, <laughs> that's always a good start. Other it than was that, good. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Other than that, Giorena didn't do a whole lot. I think he had more negative actions. If we're if we're if we're able to rate every single action on the field in a, either a positive sense or a negative sense, either with pluses or minuses, Reina had more minuses than he had pluses in this game. He turned the ball over in a bad spot in the sixth minute. He turned the ball over in a bad spot in the twenty third minute. And there were a couple of more sloppy touches, slow moves. Poor decisions that were that were made by Giorena throughout this game. I think Giorena really does encapsulate kind of the difficult season that Dortmund have had in that they started out well. Dortmund started out well. Giorena started out well. And then things kind of descended into mediocrity pretty swiftly after that. And Dortmund are still in contention for the Champions League, which is a good thing for them. They they need that spot. They need to finish top four. But Giorena still hasn't bounced back to his form at the beginning of the year, Taylor. And it's it's a little bit unfortunate. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. What did you see from him in terms of his positioning? Because it seems like, obviously, they were doing different things under Lucien Favre, under Terzic. They've moved him around. They've tried him in a couple different spots. What did you make of where he was played this past weekend? It's a 3-0 win, but you're right. He's not on the uh, score sheet. I don't believe any assists or anything like nope. that either. I didn't see much in the clips that I did see of him that were really facilitating a lot of consistent attacks. So I'm wondering what you thought of his position and just overall how it went for him. So Terzic had this team in a 4-3-3, similar to the 4-3-3 that they played against Sevilla in the Champions League. Taylor, if you remember that uh, a week or Mm -hmm. two ago at this point, they moved away in that game against Sevilla from the 4-2-3-1 that they'd use more often. And they played in a 4-3-3 with uh, Marco Royce and Jadon Sancho on the wings and then three actual central midfielders in central midfield. And it was a similar idea over the weekend for Dortmund. They they played in a 4-3-3 shape and Gio Reyna played in a bunch of different spots during the game. So sometimes he was on the left wing at the beginning, other times he was on the right wing, and other times he was playing as a right-sided number eight in a 4-3-3, playing across from Jude Bellingham in front of uh, Dahoud in that midfield. And so he had a lot of different responsibilities in this game, which couldn't be, it could be why he wasn't able to make a sizable impact. But also, man, if you're playing for Dortmund with Marco Royce and with Jaden Sancho, those are two guys who love to move around. Sancho in one, one moment might be on the left and other times he might slide over to the right and Royce will switch or Royce will rotate into midfield. If you're Giorena, your job, maybe your most important job is to allow those guys to go where they want and rotate accordingly. So it, I don't think playing in a, a bunch of different spots is really an excuse for Giorena in why he wasn't able to make a sizable impact on this game, but it, it could possibly be a factor in that. But it also, in my mind then, if he is kind of bouncing around and popping up in different places, sometimes that can be good if the player is comfortable and understands what's being asked of them and then knows when they can roll the dice versus when they need to be a bit more conservative. 
my gut feeling from this game is that he didn't really feel that level of comfort. He wasn't entirely confident all the time. And thus you could see, I always talk about like, talk about it as like, if you can see them thinking that's not always great. And there were moments in this game where I felt like you could see him sort of have to take another touch and then another touch as he was evaluating. And then he plays that ball. But those second, third, fourth touches can be really critical and they can slow everything down and they can cause problems. Maybe I'm being overly critical, but it, it felt a little bit more of a confusing performance from him than I I've seen at least of late it was things were sloppy and I think he was a little bit hesitant I think he was playing things too safe there's a moment in the 30th minute where Gio Reyna gets the ball between the lines which is exactly where he wants to receive the ball Reyna's really good historically even for as young of a player as he is I think he's good historically playing between the lines and getting on the half turn and so he received the ball in the 30th minute took a touch forward and he had Marco Royce making a run into the box between two defenders between two opposing defenders and Giorena, I believe he sees that run. He looks at Royce and sees where that run is developing, but he doesn't decide to play it. He doesn't decide to play that little through ball into the box. Instead, he plays it wide to Jaden Sancho on the right. And then it's Jaden Sancho's responsibility to create at that point. I think Reyna needs to take some more risks. Yeah, that pass might not come off eight times out of 10, but I think the odds of it leading to a creative action or leading to a productive action, even if Dortmund lose the ball, they can counterpress and get the ball right back at the edge of the box. I'd rather take that if I'm Borussia Dortmund, if I'm Terzic, than mm-hmm. having Reyna play it safe, play the ball wide, where they're likely not to be as dangerous on the right wing versus in the middle of the field. And if that ball does come off, then maybe it's a confidence boost for Gio Reyna. Maybe he's getting his touchback. Maybe he's getting his passing down a little bit more relative to earlier games in the season. I just think he's playing a little bit too safe right now, a little bit too hesitant and reserved. And I think he needs to get back to being a little bit more aggressive. And to add one more thing here, I think he needs to get in between the lines more. I'm not sure if that's something that he can entirely control because he is responsible for moving around as the players around him move, if that makes sense. He's not always able to dictate his own movement. But if he can get in between the lines and either as a central midfielder or as that right winger dropping inside or tucking inside as Morey, the right back, pushes forward... Gio Reyna really is at his best, I think, between the lines in those spaces, being efficient yep. with his touches. And if he can get more in-game reps in those spots, I do think that will help his output. I agree. And I think maybe as we get a more stable situation with Dortmund near the end of this season, but obviously with the beginning of the next, I wonder if maybe just some of that decision-making does pick up a little bit more because there's more chemistry and consistency to that squad. I do also wonder if that's uh, Holland running through instead of Royce. Does he play that ball? Because yeah. Holland, I feel like, is going to be demanding it just a little bit more, <laughs> just a little bit more forcefully, and he knows there's a, a bear hug happening if he doesn't play that ball perfectly. I also wonder, I remember at the beginning of the year, Giorena and Holland had a pretty good connection. If I'm remembering, mm-hmm. if yep. I'm remembering correctly, and that just hasn't been happening. And I wonder if that's because Reyna's been playing more on the right side. We've talked about him the last few times, I should say, that we've talked about him, Taylor. It's been Reyna more on the right side of midfield, and that was the case again today. Holland likes to make his runs starting in the middle and then bending out to the left, which is why I think he was able to combine with Reyna when Reyna was on the left, playing through balls into him. Reyna doesn't have those options anymore, and I almost wonder if that little tweak, moving Reyna from the left side to the right side more often has hurt his ability to create chances for Holland as well. But, I, I mean, I don't know. Either way, again, that's not an excuse. Giorena should still be able to impact this team because we've seen him do it before. I'm just curious to see if he's able to get that back on track this season or if that's going to be more of a project for next year. 
Well, we will have uh, more games to see how he does. They've got Gladbach on the weekend. They've got Bayern Munich coming up. And then they've still got Sevilla in the Champions League, followed by Hertha. That is a run of games they've got there. We would assume he will feature in there. We're going to hope he turns it around. Joe, anything else? Or not even turns it around, but just, uh, you know, raises the performance back to where we know he can perform. Joe, anything else from Gio Reyna uh, this weekend? I'm just wanting to preach patience here. He's a yep. young guy. He's 18 years old, I believe. That's I think probably he just smart. turned 18 at the end of 2020. It's it's not the end of the world. The sky is not falling. Gio Reyna is a good, talented young player with lots of room to grow still. So let's not overreact. I'm not trying to overreact here. I think just preaching mm-hmm. patience and caution how we look at young players, especially, is always important. So I don't know. That's my Fine. that's my final word on Gio Reyna. Well, I, then I think that's a good transition into talking about uh, Tyler Adams for a moment, because when we've talked about him in the past, there have been questions about where he gets played, when he gets played by Nagelsmann. Sometimes it's out on the right. Sometimes it's centrally. What does Nagelsmann see for him long term? And I think the answer is he will continue to play him wherever he needs him because Tyler Adams <laughs> can do lots of stuff. Adams plays the entirety of their game, Leipzig's game against Borussia Mönchengladbach. They are 2-0 down at halftime. They end up winning 3-2. Though Adams is not on the score sheet, no goals, no assists. I think he is fundamental to this turnaround uh, because he come when they line up uh, Leipzig, they're in sort of a 4-2-3-1. It's Adams and Sabitzer in the middle. They don't have a lot of width. They're trying to play through the middle. They've got a lot of numbers centrally. And so too do Gladbach, who defend in kind of a 5-3-2, but it's very tight. It's It's a lot of numbers in the middle. They're not giving anybody time and space on the ball. And Leipzig really struggled to get anything going and then leave themselves vulnerable to counterattack. And I think they make a lot of adjustments in the second half. But the main one, they take off Sabitzer, they bring on Alexander Sorloth, they put him out wide. And it's more similar to a 4-1-4-1 for Leipzig. And that one in the center midfield is Tyler Adams, who does so much dirty work, but also some very pretty work at the same time to kind of link defense to attack, to cover on counterattacking opportunities or vulnerabilities, I should say, to keep the ball moving, to win the ball back. I thought it was an excellent performance from start to finish from Tyler Adams, but especially that second half. It's been a while since we've seen Tyler Adams in midfield. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's been... Many weeks. I I can't think of a specific number, but it's been a while since we've seen Adams actually have a chance to play consistent minutes and play Mm -hmm. 90 minutes in the middle of the field. And it's encouraging to hear when he's able to impact the game in those spots, because sometimes when he is playing right wing back for Leipzig, it feels like, okay, this is the only spot that Nagelsmann really sees him as. But this is an important game for Leipzig, this win against Gladbach. This is a big chance for them to stay connected-ish to Bayern Munich at the top of the table. And seeing Tyler Adams, yes, in the midst of fixture congestion and all of those things, but seeing Adams get a run out in midfield is a good reminder to me of the fact that he can be this quality utility player for Leipzig. Yeah. Taylor, my question is, is first, I want to spotlight his defensive work because I think that's something Adams does really well. What did you see from him defensively before we dig into maybe how he looked with the ball at his feet? I think a performance that surprised me, even though I'm very familiar with Tyler Adams, but surprised me because of his size. Like, I don't always think of him as being dominant in the air or even strong in the air. And in this game, he fights for everything. Every loose ball that comes near him, be it on the ground, be it a 50-50, be it a long ball, like played over the top that he ends up challenging for. I just felt like his fight was there from start to finish. But he then, like, augments that with good technical control of the ball. So when he 
does have moments where it's a loose ball and he ends up winning it, he really quickly brings that ball into control and finds a smart pass or takes somebody on and then plays a smart pass. There's not a lot of indecision. There's not a lot of like, okay, now let me slow it down and figure it out. You can see the training under Nagelsmann. Nagelsmann screaming clearly a lot has gotten him working very, very quickly, making decisions very, very fast. It's kind of the opposite of what we talked about with Gio Reyna. I felt like Tyler Adams, as soon as he wins that ball, is evaluating three different options and tends to pick the right one. At least he did this weekend. So again, the defensive side, very, very strong. We've talked about Tyler Adams over-pursuing and over-committing in terms of how mm-hmm. he closes the ball down and just kind of rushing past the opposing attacker. Did that happen in this game from what you saw, Taylor? Did Adams kind of rush in and get a little too aggressive at times, or was he more controlled with his defensive movement? I think there are still moments where you could see the aggressiveness there, but that was more about challenging for those loose balls. I did not see the thing you're talking about where we've seen him sort of over-pursue, get turned, and now he is left wide open space behind. Maybe that's because he was playing centrally versus out wide, but I saw him pretty regularly holding his ground, pretty regularly making sure that he was blocking lanes as needed, and then stepping when the situation required. So I didn't see him over-pursuing. If anything, there's a moment in the first half, I believe, when he is the like deepest player back for Leipzig. I think they have a set piece, Gladbach counter. Saying it's a 2v1 is generous because there are lots of Leipzig players in pursuit, but Adams does an incredible job of taking the right approach angle. I think it's uh, Turam and Mbolo are the two that he's trying to split the difference between. And he tracks uh, Brian Mbolo while at the same time being aware of Marcus Turam, who's on the ball. And in splitting the difference, Turam then kind of shifts wide, I think, trying to pull Adams out. Adam con- Adams continues to adjust his positioning so that neither one ever, fi- the pass never seems on, but I think Turam never feels fully like, okay, I'm just going to take it to goal because now I've got my opening. And I felt like there, that was kind of the opposite of what we talked about with him. It was really good positioning and decision-making without ever overcommitting one way or the other and then creating vulnerabilities that his teammates had to make up for. You texted me that clip and the caption. It was it was so Yee. good. I have to share it. You said uh, Tyler Van Dyke, and it's true, <laughs> right? It, it was just like that. Virgil Van Dyke, <laughs> not not quite as extreme as that. Virgil Van Dyke against Tottenham in the Champions League final. Is that when it was? Uh, my memory yeah, is a I little so. fuzzy again. Goldfish. That over sounds here. familiar. But it is a similar idea of him biding his time, getting the angles right, and controlling the attack instead of having the attackers controlling him. That's great stuff from Tyler Adams. My other question for you, Taylor, and I guess my last Tyler Adams question for you from this performance. Whenever we see Adams play in central midfield, I want to try to evaluate his passing. You talked about what he can do in little short moments after he recovers the ball, or little simple passes he can play and make the right decisions in very, very limited time. Leipzig had a lot of the ball in this game. They had a lot of possession. Was Tyler Adams a a big part of that, playing in midfield as a double pivot and then as a single pivot in the second half, or is he more of a passenger in their possession scheme? Uh, somewhere in between, I would say, because I I think when they win the ball back, he is definitely the one who is looking to see if he can spring a counter right away. If he cannot, he is not trying to gamble. He's not trying to drive forward with the ball or get caught out. What I saw was him sort of trying to play that first ball in if it was there, but if not, just keep the ball moving, wait for Leipzig to get into the kind of attacking shape they need to be in, and then go from there. Further forward, though, I think he did a really nice job of recycling possession. I wouldn't say he was penetrating too much. He gets a couple shots, but for the most part, I saw him moving the ball from left to right, doing a really good job of just sort of probing, I think, more than anything else when it comes to how Leipzig were trying to kind of pull apart Gladbach. He's not trying to go for the glory pass. He's not going for the glory shot. He is, I guess you could say, playing it safe. I wouldn't go that far with it. I think it was just sort of he was being 
efficient in his possession and in his passing because I think that is his role. He's not trying to unlock the defense for this team and he's not trying to give the ball away and then have nobody shielding for the counter. I think he was splitting the difference and doing a pretty good job. I am very positive on Tyler Adams coming out of this game if that weren't clear. No, that's good to hear because there's always going to be trade-offs with any player, but especially with Tyler Adams because we know Mm -hmm. we have a pretty good idea, I should say, of his skill set right now. He's not super comfortable with the ball under pressure in build-up, in my mind at least. He's not going to hit that long diagonal pass out of midfield to create something. He's not going to hit that glory pass like you're saying, Taylor. But if he can be a reliable possession recycling number six for the men's national team, I think that brings a lot of value. And there may be games where he doesn't really fit what Berhalter's trying to do because Berhalter wants more possession quality out of that number six. But there also will be games against high octane opponents that I think Adams is going to be so important to stopping their counterattacks, winning the ball back, counterpressing, doing all of those things and recycling possession. And so I think it's encouraging that we see another performance that kind of falls into that second category that reinforces the idea that Adams can do at least some things you want to see from a number six with the ball for the U.S. men's national team. Yep. And uh, and to drive it home, statistically speaking, uh, 91 out of 106 passes, that's an 85 percent pass completion rate, 65 of those passes coming in the opposition half. So roughly two thirds of all passes he completed were in Gladbox half, which kind of shows you his sphere of influence. I think only one key pass and only one shot on target. So also showing you where he is maybe not as influential. But either way, I'm going to say a good performance from Tyler Adams. Uh, anything else from him or Leipzig? or Gladbach? I'm good, Taylor. I'm good. All right. Then we will talk. We're halfway through. We've got four more players still to be discussed. But first, let's take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. All right, Joe Lowry, we are back. Where should we go next? It's Tim Way of time, baby. He came off oh, the boy. bench in the second half of League uh, Leaders Lille. That's a lot of old sounds for me in a row. Um, and Leo's 1-1 draw with Strasbourg over the weekend. Tim Weah came on in that 61st minute and played on the left wing in Leo's 4-4-2. And then, Taylor, as if we didn't have enough right backs, he switched to right back Uh-oh. after Leo get their late equalizer. And they're really pushing for a late winner. And so so the coach switches Weah over to right back so that he can have another attacking player on the field. But man, yeah, we've got we've got right backs galore. That's not actually going to be Tim Weah's position for the national team. Don't worry, anybody. But I thought Weah came on and tried to do just about everything to get Lille level because they were down when he comes into this game. He tries everything he can to get Lille level. And I, I love that so much. I watched Tim Weah play right after I watched Gio Reyna play. And the difference in speed of play, the difference in thought, the difference in just straight line speed and athletic ability was really, really stark, Taylor. 
I want to talk about that right back for a moment. (laughs) Like, was he doing a conventional right back job or was it sort of a you are in the right back area, but you are very much attacking whenever the opportunity presents itself? The second thing. The second thing. Tim Wayne looked awkward at that spot. He looked like he wasn't exactly sure what to do. He's played there before this season for Lille in similar situations, as far as I can tell. So this isn't the first time it's ever happened. I'm not breaking Tim Weah positional news here, but it is always fun to me because, you know, we've got a lot of young, talented right backs coming through the pool. Sergio mm-hmm. Dest, who you'll talk about in a little bit, Julian Araujo, Brian Reynolds, Reggie Cannon. Uh, I mean, the, the list goes on and on of players in the U.S. pool that have played right back before even. Weston McKinney, Christian Pulisic's played right wing back. Jossie Zardes played right back for a few games with the Galaxy a few years ago. The list really does go on for quite some time, and I'm just glad Tim Weah can be a part of that. Uh, Well, maybe he doesn't end up playing right back. Maybe he plays out on the wing. What he reminds me of when it comes to wide attackers for the United States is the famous Bruce Arena quote about Clint Dempsey. Uh, We'll keep it PG here. I'll just say that Clint Dempsey tries stuff is what uh, Arena said about Clint Dempsey. There we go. There we go. Uh, (laughs) uh, Very big difference between tries poop and tries to poop. But yes, Clint Dempsey trying things. And I feel like like we have Christian Pulisic who can obviously create and go at people and score goals. Same thing for Gio Reyna, same thing for lots of other attackers. But Tim Weah is the player who I most feel, most like as an like an American player abroad tries stuff. Like I see him just going for flicks and tricks and step overs and, and I like that that seems to be a thing that he has been empowered to do. It also seems like a thing that he wants to do naturally and maybe with Lille he's being given a bit of that license to do it and it just makes me very happy because I see any American kind of playing with a little bit of swagger trying different things and mostly just not beating himself up when they don't come off. I think that's fundamental to developing your attacking abilities. Wea is such a creative player, and he really does fall into that Clint Dempsey mold of being willing to to make things happen, or at least mm-hmm. to try to make something yep. happen within 15 minutes of coming on in this game. So Lillard down a goal, Wea comes on the 61st minute. Within 15 minutes, he tries a little spin turn on the far edge of the box, on the far side of the field, to combine and get in behind. It doesn't work, but he tries it. He then, a few minutes later, takes a shot from well outside the box with his right foot, trying to bend it in behind and kind of curl it into that far post. Then a few minutes later, he attempts a bicycle kick to save a ball from uh, a bouncing ball from going out of bounds. So he tries to bike the ball back into play (laughs) to keep the attack going for Leal. I mean, Tim Weah is out here literally trying a bicycle kick on the sideline to try to make something happen. Is there room to be more effective in what he does and in the creative things that he tries? Of course. I think that's the next thing for Tim Weah to work on and to to see change in his game and evolve in a positive way. But he's out there trying things. He's usually efficient with his touches. He doesn't waste time on the ball. He's flicking the ball. He's moving. He's combining. He's running directly towards goal. Those are great attributes for Lille, yes, and for Berhalter as well in that attacking system for the U.S., Tim Weah is here to combine, he's here to get in behind, and he's here to try to create something, which is a huge asset for asset for Lille when he's coming off the bench and they need a goal, yep. or even when you're starting a game and just trying to keep that lead on top of Ligue 1, Tim Weah is a really important player for them right now. This is mostly coming from me having faith in him versus anything I've specifically observed, but it does also feel like with him trying stuff that maybe could be a little bit more efficient, maybe he could be a little bit tighter, like that, that also does feel like a thing that he has been told is okay. Whereas I do feel like if his, if his manager, Leal said, Hey, tighten it up a little bit. We don't want to lose possession or more relevant to our conversation. If Greg Berhalter said, I want you out wide, but I don't want you trying this. I want you cutting it inside and playing the safer pass. It also feels like a thing he is capable of doing. Maybe he's 
still going to pepper in a few tricks and flicks here and there. But it does seem like he's a very versatile, adaptable player who can do the attacking, freestyling sort of thing, but can also do the playing a system, playing a role approach as well. I completely agree. That falls under his versatility. We've talked about that before, and I know you just said that word, but he can play so many different spots. He can do so many different things. He could be a nine. He could be an inside forward on the left or the right, which is what we see a lot from the men's national team. He can play wider and go at people 1v1 on the wing, or you know he can do any of those different roles in different schemes. He can come back and defend. He can track back. He can step high and press. Tim Weah right now, I think, is probably the most informed winger in the entire pool, and he might be the most informed forward in the entire pool right now. MLS isn't playing, so Zardes doesn't have a chance to score a bunch of goals and be in that conversation right <laughs> now. But Tim Weah isn't starting every game for Lille, sure, but he did just start midweek against Ajax in the Europa League. He's getting key minutes in different competitions. And again, this is on the title-leading team right now in France. That's a big deal. And Tim Weah, yes, and Tim is. Weah is, is deserving of being a part of that team right now, for sure. Maybe it shouldn't, but it does make a big difference to me that if this is a Lille team who are battling for like the final Champions League spot in France, it's different, and right? he's not and he's not starting. It's like, well, that's not great. We'll see what happens. But when it's yeah, they're challenging for the title. They're still alive in the Euro. Or are they out of Europa League now? They are. They're out. Yeah. Ah, well, well, never mind. Well, they were briefly, but yeah, like there's when you're top of the table and getting some starts, some substitute appearances, it just it just makes a difference, I I think, mentally to me. And it makes me pretty excited. And it's why I don't disagree with you that I think he is the most informed attacker, which seems odd to say. There's a real chance that Tim Weah is the U.S. men's national team starting number nine in 2022. There's a real chance that Tim Weah is the U.S. men's national team starting right winger in 2022. Maybe not on the left. I do think that that spot is going to belong to Christian Pulisic if he's healthy. But Tim Weah, again, let's not sleep on Tim Weah. I think he continues to deserve and show why he deserves the little bits of buzz that he gets. And I think that's only going to increase as we get closer and closer to Qatar. All right. Uh, we've talked about Timothy Weah playing right back. We've talked about some other folks. We still have Serginho Dest to talk about. But right now we're going to talk DeAndre Yedlin, if that works for you, Joe. Oh, yeah, Taylor. Bring it on. All right. DeAndre Yedlin is doing things in Turkey. Uh, he played the full 90 at right back in a 2-0 win over uh, Erzum. Oh, I should have. I had this before we started. I thought you were going to yeah, have uh, that. I thought you were going to nail uh, it. I think I wrote it down wrong is my problem. Uh, Erzum Spore, I think is what it is. I, I think I've got a typo here. I apologize. <laughs> everyone listening. Uh, but that moves Galatasaray top of the table. Uh, Yedlin has played, I believe, every game since he moved there and is now sort of dominating that right-hand side. Brian Sharetta gave us the statistical breakdown. 79 touches, 34-46 passing, 3 crosses, 9 of 13 duels won, 3 out of 4 tackles, 4 out of 4 aerials, and just looked dominant on that right-hand side. Uh, Erzurum Spore not really able to handle DeAndre Yedlin or Arda Turan, who's starting ahead of him. I like the idea of DeAndre Yedlin being more of a defensive presence, because when I think about DeAndre Yedlin, and especially relative to the stats that you just gave me, I don't think of DeAndre Yedlin historically as being a defensive-minded player. I think of him running up that right wing as fast as he can, as in a straight line as much as he can, directly into the attack. And then at that point, anything else is just gravy. If DeAndre Yedlin can win duels at the rate you just said, if he can win tackles at the rate you just said, that... That's nice from a men's national team perspective. That gives him some value that maybe other players in the pool don't have. Maybe maybe Serginho Dest does have that level of defensive ability. I don't think Dest is a bad defensive player by any means. But I, I think Yedlin adding that part of his game or it coming to the surface more now in Turkey than it has in the past, mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing, Taylor. 
I think it absolutely is. And I think this goes back to my uh, earlier point about finding the right team to play for, because I think watching him play for Galatasaray and seeing the freedom he's given, it reminds me that with Newcastle, such as they are in their present position, he's going to be doing a lot more defending, sitting deeper, bunkering, and it's going to be about the defensive side of things, which I think you're right, Joe, is not his strongest suit. He can defend, don't get me wrong, but it's that pace, it's the ability to get him behind, it's the ability to break down the channel, and that seems to be where Galatasaray are using him pretty regularly. Uh, their basic shape is a 4-1-4-1. He's at right back, as I said, Arda Turan, usually the right winger, right midfielder, but when Galtusrai are building out of the back, when they're in possession, Turan goes central, and that entire right-hand side is DeAndre Edlins, so much so that what stood out to me was that when Galtusrai would give up the ball, when they would get countered, he was not necessarily the one who was hauling back, and I don't think he was being asked to do that, that there was cover there, a central midfielder would pop out if needed, the right back would stay wider to cover for Yedlin. I didn't see him turning and jetting back into shape the way you might with, say, Newcastle, because that's so fundamental to the way they want to play, with Galatasaray being a bit more of a dominant team, especially in this league, but also kind of building in his attacking prowess, I think they've put him in a much stronger position to succeed. And it's why when he's on the ball, he's combining with Arda Turan. He wants the ball more. Sometimes he plays it safe. Sometimes he's still taking people on. But it was just a reminder to me of finding the right team is so important when it comes to building on the skills you already have, but also playing into the skills you already have, as opposed to just fundamentally trying to learn how to new, do a new thing, but you're playing in the Premier League sometimes, so that's good enough, right? Like, it, it was the first time I've really kind of had that crystallizing moment of, like, maybe it's not the best thing to just be playing in the Premier League if it doesn't necessarily help you become a more stable and long-term player. That's such a good point, Taylor. And we kind of already beat that drum with Chris Richards, but it applies yep. here, too. Right, Chris Richards is playing at a team that plays roughly similar to how Berhalter wants the U.S. men's national team to play. Galatasaray, because they are often a dominant team in the you know in Turkey, they mm-hmm. fit that mold too. They have the ball. They spend time in possession, not all the time, but they spend a lot of time with the ball. Yedlin can go out and play on the wide part of that right wing, which is what the right back often does for Greg Berhalter's men's national team. There are real parallels here, and I think playing in a Galatasaray style. Benefits DeAndre Edlin infinitely more than playing for Newcastle, where he's not really doing many of the same things that Berhalter wants him to do. It's a great spot for him right now. It absolutely is. And lest we forget, he's only 27. I think when he made this move, I was like, oh, he's like 31, 32. Like, it's kind of like the final move. It's definitely not. And maybe it is, but I, and maybe it doesn't end up getting him back into the national team conversation. I just think to see him taking people on, combining, trying to get to the end line, trying to get those crosses in, I think that is still an area that I would like to see him develop more. Sometimes those crosses found teammates. Sometimes they very much did not, but it just, it seemed like, oh yeah, right. That's why he was so exciting when we first started watching him because the pace is still there but it's not it's not the only thing that's there like yes he can still run people down yes even with the ball at his feet in a foot race he still can get around people but it's not just like oh there's that one thing that I know he does it was a lot more it was a it was a more diverse performance from him than I think I've seen certainly uh, in his time at Newcastle so yeah it's also just fun because I'm a Galatasaray fan but seeing him uh, seeing Fatih Tarim on the sidelines giving him that instruction uh, that also warmed my heart just a little bit I love that our heart is warm Taylor I'm gonna cool it slightly mm-hmm. but Maybe then I'm going to warm oh. it back up again here. Okay. I, I think there is there is not a world right now where DeAndre Edlin should be the starting right back for the men's national no. team. But no. because there are going to be 863 games 
for the U.S. Mm-hmm. this year in 2021, I believe. that's. I don't think that's too many. I think that's just about right. Because there are going to be so many games, the pool is going to need to be stronger and deeper this year, I think, than it's ever needed to be before. And when you have maybe the the third right back on the depth chart playing for the best team in Turkey, that has got to give the coaching staff for the U.S. comfort, right? That's got to yep. give them some hope that they can split their squad, play in different competitions, some that overlap, and others that don't, but you still can't play a player in, you know, six different competitions over the, over the <laughs> summer. I'm high, I'm using hyperbole here, but you get the idea. You need that depth. And I think DeAndre Yedlin is showing that he can be depth. And that's yep. really all he needs to be for Greg Berhalter right now. Yeah, I think so. I'll, f- I'll pour additional cold water on that by <laughs> saying that, like, I think I've told this story before, but like when my wife and I were living in Turkey, we watched like a Premier League game and then maybe another Premier League game. And then we went to a Galatasaray game and she was into it because we were there. But it was also sort of at the end. She was like, yeah, you can't show me like the like you can't show me like I think it was Man United, Man City, like a yeah. Manchester Derby. You can't show me that and then show me the Turkish League because it's just not the same level. And I will say that. Uh, Yedlin was the first player that I, I, I watched stuff, uh, or watched footage of for this show and got really, really excited. And then I watched Serginho Dest for Barcelona and the technique is just so much better from Serginho Dest that it was a like, right, right. Okay. There's still a gulf there that, that I don't think Yedlin can close that readily. And that is a product of Galatasaray. Just, you know, they're not Barcelona. They're not moving the ball as quickly. There's a bit more physicality to that team because there's more physicality to that league. I think the technical side of his game could certainly continue to develop and needs to I think as I said that end product that final cross I saw him rather than crossing from a little bit deeper rather than maybe cutting it back or trying to get around that last defender and then playing a square ball I saw him every time driving to the end line and then going for that low ball across the top of the box. And sometimes the player's there to get on the end of it. Sometimes it's overhit. Sometimes it's just cleared by that first defender. But maybe that final attacking product uh, I would like to see developed uh, as we have a few more games and as he gets even more consistency and chemistry with that team. I love it. We'll keep our eyes peeled for that, Taylor. We certainly will. Let's do it. Uh, my final, my final thing, uh, not on DeAndre Edlin, but I should have mentioned about Tyler Adams. Uh, but that reminded me of like the end product not being there. I did see Tyler Adams in terms of things I want to see him work on in the central spot. He went for the sort of the Michael Bradley Jackson Yule diagonal yeah. on a couple of occasions. Twice it was overhit. Once it was underhit. When I say overhit, I mean one time. I think uh, it was Clivert is able to almost control it, but it ends up going out of bounds. One time it goes over his head. The other time it gets cut out. But those are the three diagonals I saw. None of them really that clean. So that is definitely a thing that if Berhalter wants that number six doing that job, maybe Adams gets a little bit better at that one, too. So Yedlin, the ball across. Adams, the ball across as well, but in a different <laughs> way. I like it, Taylor. I like those. I, I don't know. I just like the pin. I like it when we can pinpoint specific areas yep. of improvement. Agreed. Because then we're not mm-hmm. just, you know, talking about all good things, which is which is fun. Yeah. But we also need to talk constructively and criticize in certain ways. And I think that's not, you know, unrealistic way to go about doing that. It just yes. And this is like such an unflattering way to com- to explain this. But it, my dog is laying next to me uh, as I record. But I remember like when we first got her and she just never got exercise. And so she was she had been cooped up. She wasn't like she just was very neurotic and hyper. And then we took her for one very long run. And after that, she was like, yeah, if we run every day, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. And it just like it, Yedlin felt like like a, a like a, a puppy that had been cooped up that was like free to roam and was just like running around with like abandoned 
and it was just exciting to I see as opposed to like oh he has to go back and sit in the right back spot and be sad <laughs> he's not he's not caged anymore the way he was at Newcastle he's out running free and ideally scoring goals in the near future I love that Taylor so much <laughs> I'm not sure he'll love being compared to my dog but I think the analogy works so I'm sticking with it Joe let's move swiftly away from that one let's talk about more Americans where should we go next let's talk Josh Sargent who started and right. scored in Werder Bremen's 2-1 win over Eintracht Frankfurt uh, I want to go back and emphasize that again. He scored for Werder Bremen. That doesn't happen a, a ton. And it's a really nice goal. I want to talk about that goal in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about where he was playing on the field. Because he was in a little bit of a different spot, Taylor. Normally, Josh Sargent starts as part of a front two for Werder Bremen. And he's playing kind of off of another central forward. In this game, Bremen changed their shape. Sargent started as a right-sided forward in a 3-4-3. So he's playing more on the wing, but that's not necessarily the right way to phrase it because he really stays central more often than not. He's he's an inside forward. He's not a number nine. He's not playing as that lone striker, but he's playing kind of off of that player, specifically on the right side. It allowed Sargent to actually get more involved than he normally does because he doesn't have to be that high striker that's pinning the defense back. He could drop in a little bit more. He could get more touches on the ball. He could shine defensively and track back because I think he's really... He's really capable and willing of pressing and of running and doing the defensive dirty work. That right-sided forward in a front three, I thought, actually fit his skill set pretty well. Not that I'm advocating for that with the U.S., but for how Bremen play in the limited touches he gets as a number nine, I actually really liked where Sargent was playing over the weekend. Uh, so he scores the goal, which I'm going to assume was, uh, I think he did for Gio Reyna, because Eintracht Frankfurt currently fourth. Uh, <laughs> but that loss keeps them in touching distance of Dortmund, who are currently fifth. Uh, what else did you like, aside from that he did his buddy a solid in this game? I liked what he was actually doing on the ball. So he got double the touches in this right-sided forward position than he has in his last two games playing up top as part of a front two. So he's getting on the ball more, and I think an underrated part of Josh Sargent's game is his ability to link play. He's not a Jesus Ferreira type number nine, but he is willing to drop in between the lines. He can shield the ball with his body, he can hold off a defender on his back, or he can receive the ball in the half turn and play it forward or lay off the ball with a nice little flick. Sargent's a really well-rounded number nine, and I think we got to see that more just because he got on the ball more often because he's closer to the defense, he's closer to the goal. For Bremen, not to the attacking goal, to be clear. He's closer to where Bremen's action normally is. They had, I think, 30-something percent possession in this game. And so if you're closer to the action, that is naturally going to lead to an increased output and increased touches. And Sargent can do things on the ball, whereas, at least it seems to me, a lot of his teammates at Werder Bremen don't necessarily have the ability to operate between the lines (laughs) in the way that he does. Yeah, I think I think Werder Bremen uh, fans and Bundesliga w- viewers in general would probably agree that there's not a, a ton <laughs> of technical attacking talent on the Werder Bremen team right now. Yeah, let's talk about the goal, Taylor. If you're if you're good that. with that, I'm still I'm still very confused by this goal. I have to be honest because it very much looks offside to me. I'm sure it's camera angles and I'm sure it was drawn out, but it looks very close. And I think Eintracht Frankfurt uh, definitely thought he was offside. The AR did not. The goal stands. But Joe, that aside, maybe we don't have to get too much into that one since uh, I'm sure he was onside. Otherwise, it would have been called off. What uh, else do we need to know about this goal? Yeah. So if we set that offside controversy aside, I'm on the same page that you are, Taylor. I don't really know what happened there, but he is he is straddling the line. Let's just put it that way. And I'm going to chalk that up to smarts and not to, yep. you know, not knowing where he is positioned on the field, because I think the movement throughout this whole sequence from Josh Sargent is really, really good. So he's starting as that right-sided forward in front three. 
And then he rotates inside and takes up that number nine spot during the play. So he's able to move inside as Bremen push up into the attacking half. So Bremen are in possession. Sargent's inside. Sargent drops in to keep the possession alive for Bremen. So that's kind of highlighting a thing I was talking about just a minute ago. Sargent drops in, cleans up kind of a sloppy pass from a teammate, gets on the end of it, recycles possession, and then steps high again to push the opposing back line back. And so as Eggestein dribbles the ball forward, Sargent kind of shuffles wide to his right, Eintracht Frankfurt's left, and Sargent hangs out between Frankfurt's left-sided center back and left back. So he started on the right, moved inside, dropped down, moved high again, then shifted out towards his right, Frankfurt's left. And then as Eggestein dribbled forward more and more, Sargent just kind of kept shuffling back and finding a bigger and bigger pocket of space that eventually put him behind most of Frankfurt's defensive line, which then allowed him to get on the ball from Eggestein, get the ball on his right foot, and finish low and hard to the far post on that left side. So he hit the bottom left corner of the goal. It's good movement. It's great movement to shift inside, to do all the things I just said. And then it's a calm, collected finish that you want to see from a number nine. It's a good spot. Sargent probably doesn't score that goal every time, but it's much more of a repeatable action than that last Sargent goal we talked about. Taylor, do you remember that? It's that worldie from outside the box. Yeah. Outside the box, excuse me. Vaguely, I don't, I don't yeah. remember what game that was for Sargent, but I mean, it was an action that you say, wow, that's, that's so cool. I'm going to retweet that, but that's not going to happen every game. Moves like this where Sargent gets into good goal scoring positions. This is the stuff that could happen every game. This is the stuff that you want to see from your number nine. And the fact that he actually finished the chance, that's just the cherry on top. Uh, I think it was in the 4-1 win over Hertha Berlin yes, is when he scored right. that goal. That's right. And I knew that off the top of my head for sure, not because I had Josh Sargent's soccer way profile open in front of me. Uh, I think also his vision on that goal. Very impressive to me because you can see him checking his shoulder, seeing the defender behind him, seeing the defender across from him. And I think he does a good job of making sure he straddles that line. I think even his teammates didn't think he had done a good enough job because when he scores, there's a very muted reaction. I think everyone's waiting for it to be chalked off, except for him, who's sort of like, right, it counts, guys, right? And then (laughs) everybody celebrates. And I also think to your point about the goal itself, the goalkeeper gets a hand on it, right? Yes, it is not. It it doesn't hit the back of the net cleanly, but it's low and hard enough that I don't think the goalkeeper had a great chance to stop it. That's the thing, because it's Kevin Trapp, who's a good goalkeeper. And that if if Sargent just goes for placement, given the angle and the distance, I think it gets saved. But he still has the power behind it such that Trapp can't just parry it away. So even though he does get a hand to it, it still ends up side netting, which tells me that it was placement combined with power. And yeah, Josh Sargent scoring a goal, but it not just being a tap in and weirdly it not being a worldie is exciting. It's good. It's good. Yeah. yeah. The world, he feels like an outlier. The tap in feels like, oh, but somebody else did the work. The sort of towing the line and then finishing well, it's just like, yeah, that's what you want from a goal scoring forward. Even if he is an inside forward, still a goal is a goal. I love this sequence from Sargent. I love the movement. I love yep. the vision that you highlighted. I like everything about this. And are we going to see a lot more of it for Bremen this season? Probably not. They're still <laughs> not a good team. Sargent still doesn't get involved a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. But it's encouraging. We need those little breadcrumbs to keep following the trail and see where Sargent ends up, whether that's for Bremen next season or whether that's Mm -hmm. maybe somewhere else down the line. And there's still a long way to go. There's 12 games left for Werder Bremen. They've played 22. But currently 12th, uh, they are, what, eight points outside of the relegation zone. Uh, That feels... They could certainly uh, have a bad run of form and, and find themselves back in there. But for where they were earlier in the season, I would have thought they were definitely going to be in there with Schalke talking about relegation. So getting intermittent goals, getting intermittent wins, I think is good enough for now for Werder Bremen. And then we'll see what they do in the offseason and what Josh Sargent does in the offseason. 
I'm ready for it. I'm ready for that offseason for Bremen, but uh, yeah, it'll it'll come in time. They still got games <laughs> left. Sargent can still score some goals, mm-hmm. and that that alone makes me excited. Well, the final player we're going to talk about today also makes me excited because it's Serginho Dest. Uh, we've oh, talked yeah. about him, referenced him a few times. Uh, I mentioned it on the weekend review for people who did not listen. I am so used to Barcelona playing that 4-3-3 or a variation of it, but usually with a back four, that I could not figure out for the longest time what they were doing because I just could not see that it was a back three, even when it very clearly was. Only when I finally looked at an app and saw their formation did I realize, like, oh, they have done something drastically different. But I think it was a very smart, drastically different thing with Serginho Dest playing right wing back with uh, Mengeza behind him as a sort of right center back. And I thought their combinations were pretty good. I liked Serginho Dest in this game. I liked what Barcelona did. And I think Barcelona fans should be mildly optimistic about things, given that it was a 2-0 win over Sevilla, who are quite good themselves. I miss the days where I got to watch highlights on Twitter of Serginho Dest just bossing Mm-hmm. The right wing or the left wing for Ajax's <laughs> youth academy. Yeah. And, and I think shifting him from right back to right wing back gets me closer to those glory days. Taylor, did Serginho Dest take that more advanced positioning and run with it? Or was he more, more defensive in this game? How did he play as, as a right wing back under Ronald mm-hmm. Koeman? I, I would not say he ran with it, but okay. again, I don't think. In the in contrast to Timothy Way, I don't think he was told just go do stuff and see what happens because I don't think that's necessarily the strongest part of his game. But I also don't think they wanted to leave themselves vulnerable, and that's where I think he picked his spots pretty well. What I saw him and Barcelona doing w- was pressing really high up the field, and I think they had identified the way Sevilla wanted to build out, which was either Diego Carlos, the left center back, or Escudero, the left back, would get the ball off of the goal kick. Usually, it was Diego Carlos who'd be kind of receiving it wide. Escudero would advance, Munir in the first half would would maybe vacate the space and De Jong would run into it or Rakitic would switch with him, but they were trying to overload their left-hand side, Barcelona's right, uh, and usually that would be a scenario in which they were maybe 3v2 or 4v2 in Sevilla's advantage. And Dest did a very, very good job routinely of not just standing on Escudero or standing on Diego Carlos, but inviting that pass, but then closing it down a 15, 20-yard gap very quickly, but not over-pursuing, not necessarily trying to win the ball. He does win it on a few occasions, and sometimes cleanly, sometimes it ends in a throw-in for Sevilla, but either way, he's kind of blocked that build-up. But other times, when there is a little bit of a passing opportunity, and I know, Joe, this is a clip I sent you, but there's one moment in the 30th minute, 31st minute, something like that, where basically, uh, I think Diego Carlos receives the ball. There's not enough pressure from uh, Messi or Dembele who like coming over, and that allows Carlos to take a touch forward. And now there's Escudero on the touchline. There is, I think it was Rakitic has drifted over. It might have been Luke De Jong. But either way, Serginho Dest has a player running at him with a ball, a player, if you're in Serginho Dest's perspective, to his right and to his left. And he does a really good job of backing off, but not retreating. So that, uh, like the player on the ball doesn't have the comfort and the time to really feel like, oh, I can evaluate my options because that gap is closing, closing. But every time, uh, again, I think it's Carlos is shaping to play the ball. Dest just cheats over a half step or a half yard and he just keeps doing that as he rotates back. And eventually it's just another long ball over the top. And that's what Sevilla kept having to do was there weren't any passing options. Dest closes down. Mingiza cheats over as well. And they end up just kind of dumping it down the line or dumping it centrally and then PK is there to clean up or Busquets is there to clean up. And the way he took his defensive positioning or the like seriousness with which he approached it 
caused Sevilla such big problems that they basically could not build anything down that side. Notable that Munir comes off at halftime. They make a lot of changes at halftime Sevilla and it doesn't work. But I think that press was a huge part of why they had to do that. And Serginho Dest being a big part of that press makes me very happy. Two thumbs up for Serginho Dest. It's almost like, unlike what several different French newspapers may think, it's almost like Serginho Dest is not bad at defending. No. He's just, he's not, right? He's not able to contain Kylian Mbappe for 90 minutes, uh, but no right back in the world is able to do that. And so continuing to see Serginho Dest grow more comfortable in different defensive postures, maybe that's high pressing and defending the right wing that you're talking about right here, Taylor. Maybe it's him defending back deeper and tighter like he did for Barcelona in the Champions League in that game where they got absolutely wrecked. It doesn't matter what the situation is, but we're seeing Serginho Dest get more and more involved defensively for Barcelona. Yep. And even for a club that's in crisis, that is a positive for them because Serginho Dest is a really, really talented player offensively. And if he can bring up his defensive ability and his intangibles to match up with his offensive skill set... He's going to be one of the best right backs in the world for the next 10 years. We're seeing mm-hmm. the building blocks form right now, and that's an awesome thing. It is. I want to see the building blocks for how he develops that attacking side of his game, though. Because if Barcelona, there's two things to keep an eye on, I think, for this. Number one is, do they continue this style of a back three, of pressing higher up the field? That, keep an eye on that. But then, if they do, what does that mean for Serginho Dest, who I would say based on this performance, can more than handle that right wing back spot. But what I kept seeing was it was Dembele and Messi, Messi, wow, Dembele <laughs> and Messi in a 3-5-2, 3-1-4-2, whatever you want to call it. But Messi ro- roams around, is definitely a free roam position, not a staying central or cheating over onto Dest's side. So when the ball would be played over to him by Frankie de Jong or Busquets or played further up the field from Mingiza, he tended to get it with nobody around him or nobody yeah. within 20 yards of him, but usually a Sevilla player in front of him and a Sevilla player behind him. And so in those moments, sometimes he would try to take people on. Usually that meant he would drive centrally because I think they were more okay with him being dispossessed centrally where they have numbers to kind of prevent that counter versus out wide where there's the easy overloads. But a lot of the time it was ball out wide to him and he would kind of maybe shape like he was going to drive down the line and then cut back and wait and then play a lateral pass or a square ball. And I don't begrudge him that because I think he was told don't lose the ball in an exposed position. But I also don't think he was really given the green light or gave himself the green light to take people on. So if Barcelona keep playing this style, keep playing this intensity of the press, I want to see what that means for Dest in terms of the comfort he has going at people, taking people on, trying to get around people and what that end product can be. I think you're right that he has a lot of the tools there. I just want to see what tools he brings to bear uh, on Barcelona's next couple games. And that's a great observation about that right side, the lack of structure there, because Messi's not going to give you structure. Dembele... Gives you more structure than Messi, but he's still more of a free roamer, especially when he's in a front two. So if you're Dest on that right side, you're in trouble when the ball comes to you, in a sense, because you don't have the players around you in an attacking sense to to feed them and then to make a run off of them. And so Dest is going to need to improvise if he doesn't get more structure there. But again, yeah, yep. that's something to watch over the next couple of weeks. Do we see the same shape? Do we see a different attacking approach within that shape? How does that all develop and evolve? Because I think that's going to impact Dest's ability to impact the attack in a real way. 
And to give, I agree, and to give credit where credit is due, because he is playing relatively safe for most of the time, when he does try something, you can see Sevilla sort of not be prepared for it. There's a clip, uh, I think I sent you, where he, he does sort of shape like he's going to play it back, and then he cuts inside and tries to do something, and just gets taken out. And it's very, it's a very technical run, he does a little move in there, it's why the foul has to happen, but I think if he can sort of pick and choose those moments and continue to do it very well... There's an era of unpredictability about him that means defenders will have to pay more attention to him. It means that maybe that opens up more space and becomes another asset of his game. So I find myself, more than I've been in a while, pretty psyched about Serginho Dest at Barcelona. It's only one game. We'll see what they keep doing. But still, uh, reasons for optimism uh, for for Serginho Dest, who I don't think has like loved the way Barcelona has gone for him so far. I think he's a very self-critical, very I want to always be improving, always reviewing the data and, make, and making sure I'm playing as well as I possibly can be. So I think anything we can do to put him in a position where he constantly feels like he's doing the right thing and is improving in the right way makes him grow that confidence, makes him more likely to take people on and try different things. The more the more Serginho death stepovers I see on Twitter, the better. So anything that gets him into those <laughs> spots for Barcelona, that's that works for me. <laughs> that works for me. The show has worked for me, Joe. Anything else you would like to discuss before we call this one a day? I am quite content, Taylor. Thank you for uh, thank you for flipping it back to me, though, just in case I had anything else to add. I sadly don't have any more that's nuggets fine. of wisdom to drop. That's fine. I, I'm assuming you do have more bread to bake. Joe will be back, <laughs> as will Ryan, uh, later in the week. Thursday, I think we're going to do some listener questions. Then next week, we're going to be doing some Champions League reviewing. We're not going to preview those games because we sort of did at the end of our review shows. And also, eh, it's it's not as much fun to preview a game that you're like halfway through, yeah. basically, with the fixtures. So more Champions League next week. Listener questions to round out this week. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You got it, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening, and we will be back very soon. 